Hello and welcome to Genetically Speaking. In our first season, we delved into the careers of our members within the American Society of Human Genetics. We had great conversations with genetic counselors, researchers, educators, clinicians, and more. We were able to explore their unique journeys and the impact they've made in the world of human genetics and genomics. If this is the first time you're tuning in, welcome and we're glad to have you here. For our repeat listeners, welcome back. I hope you hear something new that stays with you. Thanks for joining us in revisiting Season 1 of Genetically Speaking. Welcome to the ASHE Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Gunter, and today we're joined by Dr. Kyle Brothers from the University of Louisville, and we've known each other for a few years, worked together on projects at Hudson Alpha there. Thank you so much for joining us today. I understand you're here, you're part of chairing the the PPSI. Can you- That's right. Oh, you put me on the spot to remember what the letters mean. Uh, <laughs> the lessons, social issues. That's right. Professional practice and social issues. So the professional practice and social issues uh, committee is, uh, you know, a piece of the American Society of Human Genetics. And our goal is to help uh, membership uh, of, of ASHG address ethical issues in their work to have the resources they need to be able to address ethical issues um, in their work. And, uh, you know, in, in general, to advocate for um, genetics research uh, being, you know, helping people, which in part means making sure it's done right and making sure that the, um, the research is applied uh, in a responsible way in the community. And that's so interesting because that's something that changes <clears throat> over time, right? So. I know there was a meeting at the National Academies yesterday that talked about emerging bioethical issues, and it sounded like they grappled with that, how um, uh, consent and definitions of reuse have changed and in 30 years since some samples were collected. That must be something Oh, absolutely. That comes up all the time. There's definitely, um, you know, tried and true ethical challenges that just never go away. And then, um, you know, as science uh, finds its way into new topics, uh, cracks new eggs, you know, there's always new things coming up that we had never thought of before. And so now we'd figure out how to address them. So you can tell us a little about your current work and research. What do you? Well, I work in, um, in two areas, really. Um, I, I really, uh, originally got into genetics through research ethics. So, um, large collections of, of DNA, biobanks, biorepositories, that kind of thing. They, raise very interesting ethical issues. And so that was really the first um, area of genetics that I worked in. But then that uh, moved over time into sort of translational genetics. I am a pediatrician, I'm a clinician. And so I'm very interested in the way that genomic technologies are applied in pediatric practice settings. And so I've studied the ethical, social implications of those practices. And you, I, we talked at the point about, about earlier, this is kind of genetics adjacent, but you had a recent paper coming out called A Process-Based Approach to Responding to Parents or Guardians Who Vote for a Miracle. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I should also say, um, you know, I'm trained as a pediatrician, but also as an ethicist, and that training's not genetic-specific. Um, so I'm the, currently the chair of the Ethics Committee at Norton Children's Hospital there in Louisville, and... Um, we deal with really difficult issues in the hospital and actually sometimes in the clinic um, that that come up in, in care. And this paper is really trying to help the clinician, uh, pediatric clinician community deal with one of the most difficult situations that they encounter, which is 
a child who um, is unfortunately dying and the, the family is uh, struggling so much with the hope for a miracle that it's sometimes hard to see what the right thing to do is in terms of keeping the child comfortable, that sort of thing. Um, you know, there's just a really difficult balance between trying to uh, help families maintain hope, res respect their uh, religious beliefs, but at the, at the same time, trying to work with them to, to do the best you can for a child who will inevitably die. And, and so that's what this paper is trying to do, is trying to provide a, a process for clinicians to go through to think about how to respond to families who are doing that. So to apply that kind of rigor in, in such a difficult situation that still have clinical guidelines. That's right. Yeah. Wow. So one of the things that we've found on this podcast is how there isn't any one way to get into genetics. Yeah. We've heard about a lot of twisty paths. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, twisty paths are is perfect description. I think it's all, uh, it's all accidents and coincidences and that sort of thing. Um, uh, oddly enough, I, I got into genetics um, because of a, a research project needed to be done, and I was the person to do it. So uh, I trained at Vanderbilt University, and uh, I was the chief resident after my res my pediatric residency. And uh, when you're chief resident, you meet everybody in the hospital, and you know where all the uh, the bodies are buried, so to speak. And um, yes, figuratively speaking only. And um, that as I was moving into graduate school, which I did after residency um, in ethics, there was a need for someone who was very familiar with the folks in the hospital and who the people in the hospital knew um, to start exploring with staff and with parents whether collecting biosamples uh, for biorepository from children, how that would be uh, received by those communities. So, um, I turned out that I was the person who was well positioned to do that. And, um, that it was through that, that my mentor, uh, became Ellen Clayton, who is a, uh, extraordinary human being and also a great expert in this area. And, um, so, you know, working with Ellen on those issues related to biorepositories, um, really, uh, brought out my interest in genetics and, um, you know, it's been straight on from there. That's, uh, all my research is related to genetics and uh, informatics, that sorts of topics. Yeah. So, so for for trainees who are listening to this or in the early stages or trying to decide which, both, how did you make that decision? Um, it, I actually, uh, I was in medical school already. I had um, gone through uh, undergrad, uh, anticipating that I would go to medical school, with the, you know, working to get into medical school. Uh, with the goal of being a small town family doctor, which is kind of funny. Um, now looking back on it, that um, when I got to medical school, I realized <clears throat> that I, you know, loved academics, but I, that I also um, really valued the duality of my undergraduate training. I did, had a liberal arts uh, undergrad education, so um, the ability to to do things that are more humanities oriented and things that are more science oriented that sort of disappeared in the first two years of medical school. So um, when I realized I had that, I, I needed that duality to be happy of both working in science, but also thinking about social issues and and, and uh, humanities, those sorts of topics. Then I started to hunt, okay, well, what career path will take me from medical school to spending my life doing both of those things? 
And um, that's when it became clear to me that I wanted to do a PhD. And so um, I did residency and then when I, as soon as I finished my residency, I enrolled in graduate school. And the great thing about that path, I'll just kind of put in a plug for doing it the weird way. Um, instead of doing an MD PhD program, which is, you know, joint, um, I actually was already a licensed physician at the time that I entered graduate school. So I could moonlight on the weekends in the emergency department, you know, at that time I had a, a child and I had a family. So, um, I was able to actually, uh, keep, you know, at least keep things, you know, level financially for a while. Um, so that is a nice, uh, I think it was a nice path. And um, it allowed me, you know, I worked in during the week in graduate school. I would just uh, have some clinic and I would continue doing that. And so um, it, I was able to have uh, health insurance and all those things. So um, it, it is a kind of a weird path and maybe a slightly less efficient than doing a combined MD, PhD, but worked for me. Yeah, that's, that's the important part, I think. Yeah. <laughs> And then, and, and as you mentioned, you pretty on it sounds like that pretty early on that bioethics working with ethical issues was really important to me. So yes. about trainees who are looking for exposure to ethics or training in that, how can they, how would you recommend they go about that? Yeah. <clears throat> Great question. Um, so, yeah, there are so many ways to get into bioethics and, um, when trainees come to me, either medical students or graduate students or residents who are starting to realize that they want to think and talk about those issues, I just encourage them to start off by looking for outlets for that interest. It could be reading books. It could be uh, going to lectures within the university context on those topics, um, finding mentors that they you know want to work on little projects with. Um, it, it's really the kind of field that... Um, it's a, it's a very big field it's very interdisciplinary. So, um, it's, it's, it's not a very prescribed, uh, path. So, um, you sort of, as uh, trainees start to explore what their own interests are, explore the topics that they're interested in, then it'll start to help them imagine what their future will look like. And then they can start to think about, you know, well, what's the educational path that will get me to that future. And, uh, again, it, it's such a, diverse field. There's so much interdisciplinarity in the field that there are many, many paths to get to a career. And so it's just about figuring out what you want to do in your life and then figuring out which training program or which educational path will get you there. Any, any specific courses or exposures that you really recommend like philosophy or training or yeah. skills that would be good. Yeah. Um, I think the the place to start is really undergraduate level type of courses on bioethics because uh, those are usually survey courses and it's a great way just to see a lot of what's out there. Um, for folks that are further along in their career, let's say graduate students in genetics or genomics related fields, um, you know, as a scientist, it, it's hard to carve out a large portion of your training, but um, there are opportunities to learn certain methodologies like you know, qualitative interviewing and those types of things. <clears throat> they can be a great way to, to, uh, open doors for yourself later to be able to do, um, ethics LC, we, we call it work, uh, in conjunction with genetics, genomics research. And also being your ethical social education. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I already, yeah. 
Um, yeah, that's important. Amy Lemke and I were talking about how quality of analysis is kind of coming back and becoming more recognized as a really important part, particularly contributing to clinical experience. Yes, absolutely. It's a great way to approach topics that are so complex you don't even know what kinds of survey questions to ask, right? So, um, it and sometimes um, we have survey questions, but we have no idea what, what the answers mean. And so qualitative research can be a really great way to bring a lot of different confusing uh, issues together um, and understand how they interact with one another. Yeah. And are you, so given your training as a pediatrician, how do you think you really carefully about working with children? And that must take up a lot of your time applying some of these studying methods. It's not the same when you're working with children, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, there are numerous um, barriers is that that's the way folks would think about it, who they're trying to uh, trying to get into that area. Um, you know, consent functions differently when you're working with kids. Um, there are, you know, if you're doing s surveys or interviews, you have to think about, you know, what's developmentally appropriate to ask a, a child. Um, so, yeah, there are all sorts of uh, differences. And when you first get into the field, you think of them as barriers because there's uh, it can be hard to figure out how to solve them. Um, but, uh, you know, collaborating with folks who have experience in pediatrics, um, folks, you know, even collaborating with ethicists who have experience with that can really help make those barriers, um, you know, not make them feel like barriers, but make them feel like this is just the, uh, the way that you do research well with children. And, um, ultimately it's, it's probably not as complex as people think it is, um, once you um, start to understand, uh, you know, like child development and why that changes the way consent is done. So once you kind of get those ideas, uh, it becomes way easier to start working with family likes. Yeah. yeah. All right. So it doesn't sound like you have a lot of free time, but now that you're not spending the hour all weekend, <laughs> right. you do. do you have hot and city? I do. Yeah. Um, I'm, I love science fiction. Um, I, it's kind of funny. I think that goes along with you know, uh, part of bioethics is philosophy of science. I know many geneticists will, you know, share that interest in, uh, you know, what is it exactly that we're studying and what does it mean and those kinds of questions. And I think that drives my interest in science fiction. Um, you in Stranding Children? I have not. We were in, my child and I were in, the, there's a parade and they have a periodic table as part of the parade. So we were ill seat. Oh, really? It's fun. Yes, that's great. That sounds great. Yes. We put you not dressing up. She's very glad it's fucking You know, I'm a parent. I'm a dad. So um, between parenting and working, I'm not sure there's tons of time or lots of other hobbies. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I definitely love traveling with my family. I love the outdoors. Um, I love hiking, those kinds of things. Yeah. See, this is at the end is when we encourage people to be a little more speculative. So mm -hmm. what do you, what would you like to see happen in the next few years? I know that you're working with uh, PPSI and you're at ASHG. Yes. But what's kind of one great thing you'd like to see? I, I think we're at a, a um, inflection point, I think, with genetics where we're really starting to understand, um, or we're, you know, we're taking our first steps in understanding how, the, the whole genome works together 
So sort of thinking about polygenic risk scores and those kinds of, of advances. I, but I think as we start to move into that, we're really entering a time where we're going to need to do some soul searching about uh, how our work influences uh, perceptions of genetic determinism, how we ourselves uh, sometimes fall uh, into a trap where we uh, miss the ability to understand both nature and nurture and how they interact with one another. So, um, and, uh, it's particularly difficult for us to communicate such a, a, uh, unbelievably complex set of topics with, uh, other audiences who might be interested in our work. So, um, just thinking about the, the really excellent work that's been done recently on understanding the g genetic associations with educational attainment, um, you, you know, uh, the folks that have been doing that have really been focused on trying to communicate in those findings in, in a successful, uh, clear way. But what a difficult message um, to, to try to communicate with folks who, who don't have a lot of experience with genetics. And um, I think we really, as a community of folks who work on genetics, are going to need to uh, start um, wi widening the kinds of folks that we talk to and start uh, working with educators, working with policymakers, working with researchers in other fields like sociology and anthropology and those types of things um, to really help folks understand what our work means and what its implications are and um, what sort of misuses of it would be. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of work to be done in the next decade on that issue. And the feedback cycle of hearing their feedback and taking it serious, right? And, and reframing some of the things we're talking about as a result. Absolutely. I think in particular uh, along those lines, not just helping folks understand genetics, but really as a, as a genetics community, trying to learn from folks who have been studying uh, psychology, sociology, ch uh, child development, education, you know, all these topics that um, have been studying uh, topics that are, uh, it turns out, related to genetics in complex ways, but they have uh, a lot of insights on those things. And so I think we probably could learn quite a bit at the, um, about how to study genetics and its relationship with other ways of thinking. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Kyle Brothers, and I'm your host, Dr. Chris Gunter. Thank you for listening to us. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Genetically Speaking. Join us again next week for another episode. Thank you.